Fertility is complicated. I'm here to answer all your questions. Welcome to my podcast where we discuss all things fertility. I'm your host and fertility expert, Kalise. Let's be honest. Well, I hope you're happier there. Oh my gosh. It's such a different environment. It's so much more relaxed. It's not, um, it's kind of finger pointy at the other, you know, place. And it just, this place is a lot better. It's more family. I feel like so. Yeah. Yeah. I loved my, I still love my Lafayette family. Yeah. See them frequently. And because I was there for almost 10 years. Right. Right. So anyway. Yeah, good. So have you always lived in Colorado? No, no. I grew up in Delaware. Okay. Um, so I stayed in Delaware. I went to the University of Delaware for my undergraduate. And then I went to the University of Rhode Island for a master's in marriage and family therapy. Is that right? Yes. Yes. So reproduction and fertility, thats this is my second career. I had a very early midlife crisis. <laughs> Good for you. I think really, yes. that was probably beneficial. Yes. So, um, yeah, so I did that master's in marriage and family therapy and I practiced a couple years, but I was really unhappy doing that. And so I, at that point, really wanted to work with horses because that was my main passion and, um, And so I thought, well, I'm going to investigate equine programs throughout the U.S. Were you thinking more like veterinarian or more therapy with horses? I was trying to figure out what different career opportunities there would even be with horses. Yeah, from beginning to end. Okay, yeah, yeah. And so I ended up, you know, looking into the equine program at Colorado State University and uh, decided to go out there because I always had this draw to Colorado. I always wanted to come to Colorado for some reason. I had never been here, but I just had this draw. And so came out here and in hopes to do their veterinary program. Um, but as a psychology major, of course, I took no science. No, <laughs> absolutely no science. So I had to take a lot of, um, of the prerequisites with the science and the math. Right. And um, while I was doing those prerequisites, I uh, started working out at the Equine Reproduction Laboratory. Um, and Is that on the CU campus? It's on the CSU campus. And they are really world-renowned. They're, they're wonderful. And I started working out there, never knew anything about that whole topic of equine um, artificial reproduction. And so um, it came time to apply to vet school and I didn't get in. And my mentor out at uh, the equine lab said, well, if you come and do a master's with us, we'll, we'll pay for your master's and you are a shoe in for vet school. It's just like everyone that comes through the equine program will get into vet school if you do well, obviously in the equine program. And so I did that and, um, learned all about, you know, equine reproduction and, and spent two years doing that. And then after that, I thought, 
is this what I want to do? Do I want to keep horses as my hobby or do I want to work with horses? Um, and during my time at CSU, I had done a collaborative project, um, with, uh, Dr. David Gardner and, um, who's in the, in the human, uh, fertility. And they were wanting to use the mayor as a model for the woman. Um, and the mayor is a pretty nice model for the woman because it's an animal that we let age, um, versus, you know, cattle and, and mice that are, um, have been used as models in reproduction. Um, but we don't, we don't have the aging model, um, that we could use as a comparison in the human and so we had done a collaborative project with Dr. Gardner, um, looking at young mares versus old mares, um, and seeing if we could find some differences in the follicular fluid. So interesting. Um, so yeah. when you talk about the aging mare, um, do their eggs look similar to human eggs? As they, um, or are you talking about surrogacy in the aging mare? Uh, so the. The egg morphology of the mare isn't um, it isn't quite the same as in the human. Their their eggs are a little more lipid, lipidy, um, and does that make it more difficult to work with? And um, are human eggs more fragile than like like when you're no, talking to the I public? Think, is I think I think eggs are eggs. I think the eggs are very fragile, just in general. Um, but every species has a little. Uh, you know, they can have their own little quirks, right, with their eggs. Um, but as a whole, really, the the aging model in the mare, it is a nice comparative to the human. Um, uh, unfortunately, in our study, we didn't find um, the differences that we were looking for in that particular study. But, but even course, in that, that answers some questions, too. Right, yeah. right. Um, the one unfortunate thing about using the mare as a model is it's, it's very expensive, it's a very expensive model um, versus using cattle or or mice. Um, so are those but, really the only three mammals that we've practiced reproduction in? Oh, no. Sheep, pig. Okay. Um, there, there's several species. Okay. Yeah. There, yeah. I mean, cats, dogs. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when you were thinking about working with equine versus having it as a hobby. Right. Did um, did you just decide that you wanted it as a hobby, and that's when you went into human reproduction? I did, um, because at that juncture, it was either applying to veterinary medicine or then uh, pursuing um, uh, an advanced degree in uh, still in fertility, but focusing more on the human. And um, so I, I ended up going the, the human way. Dr. Uh, Gardner um, co-sponsored my uh, PhD along with a professor at um, that was uh, had residence at uh, Colorado State University. And um, with both of their supervision, then I conducted my research. And um, I did uh, research from that point on after my master's, I did research in cattle and uh, mouse and the mice. Okay. And um, I'm fascinated in the whole um, uh, animal reproduction. So I, I want you to kind of address some of those things that you that that you experienced. Now with the equine, why would we need equine reproduction? So um, the 
field of equine uh, reproduction is really a lot larger than most of your average, uh, you know, people would would consider um, it. Well, taking a racing, you know, thoroughbreds aside, because all of that has to be um, natural conception, non- nothing artificial. Oh, is that right? Horses, correct. So racehorses, uh, thoroughbreds. So thoroughbreds. The, the jockey club will not allow registration of, um, of horses, of foals, um, that have not been, um, conceived through live cover. My goodness. I didn't even think about some of the rules and regulations regarding yes, that. Yeah. So all the registries are different on what they'll allow. And so, um, you know, at the time, and I'm not up to date on all, um, the registry, um, requirements and, um, rules at this point, since I'm not, I haven't been in that field for quite some time. Um, but a large portion of our horses that we had, um, at the equine lab when I was there were quarter horses and they were performance quarter horses that did, um, you know, reining and cutting, um, sports that have a high degree of, um, genetic aptitude that gets passed down to the offspring. And they're looking for that, um, in their offspring. And these foals can be very, very valuable. And so the owners obviously want to be breeding their mares. If they have a high quality mare, they want to reproduce those genetics, um, as often as they can. And, uh, a lot of times they don't want to necessarily take their mare out of performance in order for that mare to have a foal. So, um, they can, um, you know, uh, do artificial insemination of the mare, flush the embryo out of that mare's uterus and place the embryo into a, um, recipient mare who will then carry the offspring to term. And then the mare that the, you know, the, the genetics of that embryo, that, that mare, she can continue to perform and she can continue to earn money, um, okay, yeah. without having to come out of training. Right. Okay. So that, that was all really fascinating. We're going to, we're going to go step by step through that. So as far as you talked about flushing the embryo and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So in order to fertilize the egg, um, you need sperm, of course. Correct. So you're going to find a qualified sperm that, you know, probably another athlete, right? Another... Right, right. Um, So there are, um, you know, many stallions, many studs that are advertised, um, their services. And uh, what they'll generally do is um, do collections of the stud and they can either uh, freeze um, the semen, or they can do cold semen and ship that out, um, and time that with, um, you know, the cycling of the mare. Okay. So, um, whatever the owner's choice is. So mm-hmm. there is a large number of stallions mm-hmm. to choose from. So right. they're going to look at the, um, the, um, just the lineage the of that line- horse to yes, see what correct. the performances were. Correct. That horse's performance, what, um, what they're trying to achieve in their foal, if it's a good match with their mare, so matching those genes. Okay. And so they pick their stallion, and then, of course, they have their mare. They bring the mare in. Um, well, at the time, they're bringing the mare in to... Um, into the, the uh, CSU lab and that mare would then be monitored at that point. Mm-hmm. So we would be monitoring her for her own ovulation. Sure. And then as her follicle would increase in size, then, you know, we could coordinate with, um, the, 
the, the stallion, stallion side, mm-hmm. right? So if they were doing mm-hmm. a, a cooled sample mm-hmm. for the insemination, then um, most, you know, different stallions would be on different schedules. So they would collect Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or sure. they would, you know, they would have their own schedule. And so we would time it with that. All right. I'm sure yeah. everybody wants to know how you collect semen on a stallion. Very carefully. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> They're really large animals. Um, so you um, have a basically a breeding shed, and you can use either a live mare or you can have um, basically a dummy mare. Yeah, but sometimes that live mare is... That's kind of a dangerous situation sometimes with the stallions, correct? Right. So sometimes right. you that's a high risk and you really don't want to expose the mare. Yeah. So, you know, if you're using a... Um, basically a mare that's a dummy, you would still have a live mare in there. It's going to, we call it a tease mare, that a mare that's it's like in a, heat. It's like a blow up doll. <laughs> no, hey, am I wrong? It, I mean, it's, it's just, I'm envisioning what's going on in this stall. So let you got to walk me through it. Let me think. Okay. So it's a large, it's a large room. Okay. Very large. I bet. And, um, it's almost like, uh, a, say like the size of maybe like a I don't, maybe I'm not twice sure the size compares. of a stall a regular stall like oh the that? room the- oh no I would say I mean it's bigger than this okay yeah okay and so um you the the dummy mare is kind of like say I just think of like maybe a balance beam but that's like really wide right um and uh, so he so he can mount it. It's got to be large enough that he correct. can mount exactly. it and keep so his balance. So it's stabilized and and he can mount this. But you also have to have a live mare in there that's uh, kind of protected. That's in a, a sort of a separate area. But she's a mare that's in heat. So he smells a scent. Correct. Okay. Yep. 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 So he's um, you know getting excited with the with the live mare that's in there, and then you bring the stud over to the dummy mare. He mounts the dummy mare, and then you have, um, it's called an artificial vagina yeah. or an AV, yeah. and it's basically just a tube that is filled with um, hot water. And, um, oh, really? Yeah. yeah. And okay. then, um, so then it um, is like a rubber inside, uh, a, a rubber... Um, Protective kind of coating. Coating like, like mm-hmm. inside that you sort of fill with gel. And then um, then you place his penis into the artificial vagina and then he ejaculates and then the semen runs, to, you keep it tilted and then the semen runs down into the collection cup. Okay. So there's just a big collection cup. At the, at the, the bottom of the... Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then is that semen analyzed like it is in humans? Like it's spun down, you look for live sperm, you right. separate it out. Exactly, and, exactly. Okay. So you, you do your counts and um, and your, your volumes and counts, and then you separate it into uh, different portions because you can inseminate more than one mare off of um, one ejaculate. Yeah. So you want to maximize... Um, the amount of breeding that you can get off of each ejaculate. Um, and so if you're, if you're cooling it, then you prepare it at that time. Um, and then if you're freezing it there, you can get, um, many, uh, frozen specimens off of a a single, um, ejaculate. Right. So do you have an andrologist there at the time, or is it just like, this is the 
stud's owner that takes care of this? So is there somebody is, yep, qualified there? Exactly. So there were different departments and I'm sure most places uh, function um, like this that work with horses. So you, we had a department that specifically did uh, semen um, prep and analysis. And then um, we had at embryo transfer department and I was in the um oocyte departments that were where we collected eggs and did the more um uh, invasive uh, right. type IVF procedures with right yeah so I had always heard of this basically inhumane way of collecting semen from cattle and, and they may still do this but they use a like a, a prod an electric prod that's actually inserted into the anal cavity oh, and it's right. and they actually send electro electrical stimuli to the prostate and then it's an immediate ejaculation that's what i had always heard of and is that not used anymore so i have never uh, been involved with a procedure like that with horses you <laughs> it sounds horrid you, yeah, exactly <laughs> with horses you um it it's done you know with uh, you, you can either you know, again, use the live mare and right. then still, you would still place, um, the studs penis into the artificial vagina right. or you can use the dummy mare. Um, I like uh, that way much better than yeah, the electrical yeah. probing. And, and so do the stallions. They, I bet. They like it. Yeah. <laughs> they and like honestly, it. They think they've actually done you know, something. <laughs> most of the stallions you can train pretty readily to do that. They, they become, you know, that's like, what they're like, used to. That's like what machines, they think. really. <laughs> they come in, they know exactly what to do when they get into the um, into the breeding shed. And, uh, you know, some are well, more well-mannered than others, yeah. uh, but they, they do learn that fairly quickly. Yeah, it sounds so typically male. No, yeah, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so let's move over to the mare side. So if you're stimulating her ovaries... Um, you know, she's a high-performing mare and you want to get more than one egg like we do in human, in human, um, retrievals. Is it the same process? Is it gonadotropins? Is it all of these things to grow those those follicles? Or do you just wait till she ovulates? You do ultrasounds and then you inseminate? Right. When, um, you know, again, the field has, uh, changed since I was in there. Um, and I know that there were some super ovulation protocols, um, that had been tried at that time as well. But what we did was we did, uh, a single, uh, we, we, we let it, we let the mare ovulate or, or grow her own follicle the way that she, um, normally would, we did, um, use the HCG, uh, once the follicle got to a particular size and, um, then we would, uh, retrieve that one egg. Okay. That one and the egg. HCG, human chorionic gonadotropin, that's actually what releases the egg that makes her ovulate. Correct. correct. And then that's when you would, we would do the retrieval or we would do, um, a, uh, timed artificial insemination. So okay. depend on, on which, uh, program the mare was in. So, um, mares that, um, were younger, had better fertility could be in the embryo transfer program where we, um, you know, would watch her own follicle develop and then artificially inseminate her and let conception happen inside of her, but then flush the resulting embryo out about day seven uh, okay. after insemination. Okay. After ovulation. And then we place that embryo into another mare. 
if the mares were older or they had uh, fertility issues, um, then they would graduate into the oocyte transfer program. Um, and that's where we would, um, again, let their follicle mature and grow and then uh, trigger them with HCG. Uh, but instead of inseminating them, we would go in and um, flush out that um, aspirate the egg. Uh, uh, before implantation happens. Right. Mm -hmm. So before that uh, follicle ovulates, we would go in and do an egg retrieval. Okay. And is that similar to humans? Yes. It's the identical Anesthesia, you go through the vaginal wall, find the fallopian tube. Right, right. So you go, you do go through the vaginal wall and then you aspirate the um, egg out of the follicle. Um, the mare has a, a, a light anesthesia. They're standing. They're oh, not, okay. They're not down. Okay. Um, and uh, the process is pretty quick. And so you recover um, the egg, and then we would, uh, we would then uh, culture the egg overnight. So we would usually do that procedure in the afternoon, uh, recover the egg, uh, put that egg into an appropriate media in the incubator overnight, and then transfer that egg into a recipient mare the next day. Um, the recipient mare then um, simultaneously, right after we would do the egg retrieval of the donor mare, we would then artificially inseminate the recipient mare. Okay. So she's been inseminated, and then the next morning we place the egg into her oviduct, mm-hmm. and then fertilization takes place within the recipient, but the gamete isn't hers. Right. The, yeah. Right. So the resulting foal has the genetics of the donor mare. Right. And then, so you're not fertilizing the egg in the media. You're not like actually so taking the sperm I, and injecting. Right. Like, when you know, I was there, Ixy or uh, anything back like that. in uh, <laughs> the early 2000s, uh, mm-hmm. 2000. Um, to about 2003, uh, that's the way that we routinely did it. And then after that, um, the uh, lab started switching over to doing ICSI. Mm-hmm. So instead of inseminating that recipient mare, we would take the sperm sample that the owner had requested that we use, and we would place a single sperm into the egg. And then they started culturing um, for longer and longer periods. And now instead of doing a um, surgical transfer, because with oocyte transfer, you had to surgically um, place the egg within the oviduct. You had to make an incision in the flank of the mare and expose the ovary and then place the egg in. Um, Now with ICSI, we create the embryo outside of the body, uh, culture it in the incubator. And then when the embryo is um, a blastocyst, transfer it back into the uterus of the mare, just like we would with the embryo transfer program. and so there's no surgery required for that. Yeah. Which sounded extremely invasive versus yes. placing the egg in and then, you know, inseminating. Right. Because the, the it also very much uh, limits the number of times that you can use your recipient uh, mare herd, right? Because you really could only do a surgery on either, you know, right. one on each side because then you develop scar tissue and it is much harder to expose the. Uh, Oviduct. Yeah. So you mentioned ICSI. Can you, um, we're very good at acronyms. Yes. 
our listeners may not be, you know, they may not know what ICSI is. Can you, right. can you talk to that? So ICSI is intracytoplasmic sperm injection. And it's when we place a single uh, modal, uh, hopefully morphologically normal appearing sperm. Uh, we place that sperm into uh, a mature oocyte, a mature egg, and um, hope to achieve fertilization through that process. As opposed to the process of fertilization where you do co-culture of your eggs and your sperm in the same dish and let them co-incubate for, you know, 15 to 17 hours. Um, this eliminates that process. We, um, as the embryologists, are physically placing the sperm in the egg. One of the mares that we had, we nev- we didn't get a full from her when I was there. I think they had gotten a full before I got there, but she was... She was really, um, she was, I can't remember how old she, she was, she was old and the, the owners just wanted another foal from her, but her foals were worth about $500,000. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there's strong incentive. There is. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So we had a fantastic guest named Jeff Foudum, who spoke to the fact that half of issues with reproduction are attributed to male factor. 40% men, 40% women have issues, and 20% is unknown. And Canon Fertility Supplements knows this and has developed a really fantastic product for them. It's really the only male fertility vitamin that has coenzyme Q10, which helps with um, the energy to that sperm so those little suckers can swim around and figure out how to get to the egg and fertilize that egg. It's all in one product. Right. It's right there. It's made simple for you guys who just don't know what you're doing. <laughs> Not putting the blame anywhere, but <laughs> the women will tell you how to take it. So you can order male vitamins at canonco.llc.com. So you weren't always like a, a science nerd. You just, you kind of just almost accidentally got into that, huh? Very accidentally. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I wonder sometimes um, that most people accidentally get into this field and, and mm-hmm. a lot of fields um, just kind of um, by taking a few different turns in your path, you stumble upon something that you didn't even know mm-hmm. um, was an opportunity. Uh, so it was kind of a circuitous path that led me to fertility. Right. And so how do you compare it to human fertility? Are you... Did you feel like there was more pressure on you because you were dealing with probably some pretty expensive eggs and some pretty expensive sperm at the time? Am I right with the equines? Right. Yes. So that's stressful. It, it's stressful um, with, uh, you know, I think across the board with equine, with human, um, uh, People have asked me that a lot, you know, doing the transition from an animal model to a human model is, you know, were you scared? You know, what, you know, if you drop something, if you did something and I thought, and I've always said that 
you know, when I was doing all of my graduate studies, everything was precious to me. If I made a mistake on anything, that's another week of my life that I had to do this research. That's another. So I never did not treat you. That was a double negative. So yeah, I, <laughs> I never um, was careless right. with any of the gametes that I worked with because they were all so precious. So transitioning into human was not um, that different for me. So it's the same stress level because, right? I mean, it's, it's almost like by the time our patients get to the point to where it's time to fertilize the egg, we've gone through the retrieval, we've got the sperm, it's up to you. They may be out of money. They may be out of hope. This is their last chance. And are you feeling like it falls on your shoulders? And so when you start fertilizing those eggs and you go home at night and you come back to see how they're developing, that has to be stressful. Well, as an embryologist, you always want the best for every patient. Um, But I think in this profession and a lot of professions, you have to kind of separate the work that you're doing from the circumstances that you're um, given uh, because not every egg and not every sperm are of the same quality. Um, and I know that when I sit down and do an ICSI, I am doing my best for that patient. I, uh, I never deviate from the same pattern that, um, you know, that I've got sort of defined for myself for every case. And so, you know, in the beginning, when I first started, you know, if I had a case that didn't do well, I did blame myself. But as time went on, I learned to realize that I can't control everything. You know, I sit down, there was, there's, there's nothing different that I'm doing in a case that I get 100% fertilization on in a case that maybe only one or two out of 15 eggs fertilizes. It, it's not what I'm doing because I'm doing the same thing each time. It's the quality of the gametes that I'm starting with. So I have learned to blame myself less Good for that. Um, otherwise, it does. It becomes too heavy of a burden for you. It does, and, and then it's not enjoyable anymore. Right, right. And we all want what's best for our patients. That's um, right. And we all try our very best every day. That's right. So it's just that sometimes it doesn't work out um, the way that we hope. Yeah. Yeah. Now I know it's very procedural and you, you do things the same each time because it's proven, but do you feel like that's your day? Your day is very structured and you feel like you're doing the same thing every single day. Like, will you walk me through a day of, um, embryology? Yes. And and draw a complete picture for me. Right. So the embryology day starts every day with quality control. So we meticulously go through and we measure um, and uh, record and document all of the temperatures and the gas concentrations in our incubators, um, the temperatures on all the surfaces that the um, 
gametes and embryos will touch, that our media touches, everything is measured and confirmed to be in good working order before we start the day. And then um, the first step of every day after that's finished is we look at our uh, fertilization from the previous day. So um, with our ICSI, uh, we do in the afternoon the day before, and we know that the sign of fertilization is about 15 to 17 hours after ICSI. So that's why we do our fertilization checks first. Um, so we do those checks and then uh, all of the embryos that, um, or all of the eggs that are identified to have fertilized normally get moved into um, the next stage of culture media into a new dish and placed back into the incubator. Uh, the next um, type of checks that we do are our day three checks. Um, so uh, we don't look at embryos on their day two of development. We look at them on day three. We record um, the number of cells that each embryo has and the percentage of fragmentation. Um, we will also prepare embryos at this time. Um, if the patients are electing to do genetic testing, we prep the embryos on day three um, by putting a small hole in that uh, outer shell of the embryo called the zona pellucida. Um, we, with, a, with a laser, we put a small hole in that to prep it for biopsy. And then we place the embryos at that time into uh, stage two of culture media uh, from uh, egg retrieval to day three. The embryos ha um, have a certain metabolic requirements, and we know then from day three to day five that those requirements change. So then we place them into a media that satisfies those metabolic needs. So then they get put back in the incubator after that. Um, then the next checks that we do are our day five, day six, and uh, possibly day seven uh, embryo checks where we're looking for blastocyst development. And when we have high quality blastocysts develop, we're either biopsying them or uh, freezing them uh, without testing, without the biopsy. Um, we could also do a fresh transfer on embryos at this stage as well. Okay. So you mentioned fragmentation. Mm -hmm. Are you talking about um, like a breakdown that you don't want to see, or are you talking about something that you want to see? So when the cells of the embryo divide, um, they can divide very cleanly so that when you look at the embryo, you just see uh, the circles that are that of the cells. Um, and then sometimes when they divide, they are extruding um, portions that they have no intention of incorporating into the embryo. And they just look like little uh, blebs off of the cells. And so the higher percentage of fragmentation that we see in an embryo is associated with a poorer quality embryo. Right. Okay, good. I know that you can sometimes see um, oocytes. Like your, your eye is so good at this point that you can look at an oocyte and see it's kind of grainy. It may not be able, you know, and, and maybe all of the oocytes that got collected during that retrieval period do look a little bit grainy and a little bit fragmented. Is that one of the cues that you use if, if it's an unsuccessful um, fertilization? So um, we, we will uh, make notations 
of our oocytes at the time of ICSI um, because we're performing those procedures at such high magnifications. It's quite easy to, to mark down some characteristics of the eggs. Um, and so what we'd like to see is kind of a very... Um, even texture throughout the oocyte. Um, sometimes we will see um, some real grainy or um, I could call it pitted or vacuolated. Um, we don't like any of these characteristics. We make denotations of this. These characteristics aren't always associated with a poor outcome. Um, and you know, we haven't quite identified the characteristics of the egg that, you know, we would say, absolutely, this egg is not going to develop. Um, so that, you know, people have tried to kind of find that sort of needle in the haystack, like, well, what can we look for um, just with our eyes that could uh, lead us uh, to a predictive value at the end, but we haven't really seen that with the egg. Um, now, one thing um, that we will note at the time of ICSI is, um, is the reaction of the egg to the placement of the ICSI needle within the egg. So what we like to see is the egg resist the needle a little bit, we like that um, the ooplasm of the egg to have some integrity. Um, sometimes when we stick the needle in, there's absolutely no resistance. The egg's very watery. Um, you know, those um, in many cases will degenerate if um, they're extremely watery. They they, they have no resistance. Um, I do see a correlation between those degenerating after ICSI. Um, but, you know, sometimes I will mark down like that I didn't care for the, the injections of the eggs, then they'll do just fine. Sometimes I mark it down and then I'll see, you know, that the fertilization was a little lower than anticipated. So, you know, it's not a hard and fast, um, you know, if I see this, then this is going to be the outcome. Unfortunately, you know, we've, we've always been looking for things like that, but we oh, haven't yeah. quite found, um, anything that would with the egg. Right. Yeah. And that's one thing that's difficult for patients to understand. Um, right. you retrieved 15 mature eggs and I only had one that, you know, made it to, you know, testing or one that actually fertilized and looks viable and, you know, finding a, a, um, the quality of eggs and recognizing quality of eggs is so difficult when you tell patients, well, we got 15 of them. Because what's the first question that they ask you when they wake up in recovery after a retrieval? Is how many eggs yeah. did we retrieve? Um, and I think the, the only way to um, kind of combat this, to, to address this, is education of the patient. And so I think um, laying things out very clearly before the patient is retrieved and leveling expectations can really alleviate a lot of heartache at the end. So we know that every egg that we retrieve is not going to be mature. Um, we know that every mature egg that is uh, fertilized with the ICSI process 
isn't going to fertilize. Um, and we know that every fertilized egg is not going to develop into a high quality blastocyst. So I think being honest with patients from um, the beginning and setting realistic expectations um, of what to expect at each stage. We know the process is like a funnel. So what we start with is not going to be what we end with at all. Um, and I like to be uh, really clear with patients that um, the number of eggs that fertilize, I expect 30 to 40% of those to be a nice high quality blastocyst. And I think if they're told that right up front, it really can alleviate a lot of frustration at the end. I started with 15. How could I possibly be down to three now? Mm -hmm. But where we in the lab think this is a great outcome um, because it was, you know, say we had nine fertilized and, and we got three high quality blasts at the end. Well, that's 30%. And that is really on target of what we would expect. Exactly. I mean, our goal is one live birth, one right. healthy baby. Yes. That is our goal. Yes. And when you think about having 15 eggs that we retrieved and you get one healthy delivery out of that, we've achieved our goal. Exactly. But that's hard for people to understand. It is hard. And I think uh, part of that is because it is such, um, it's such an, an emotional process. It is a long process and it is a financially draining process. Um, so I think um, patients want, you know, basically to achieve their, their whole family plan in one cycle. And, and some patients do, but a lot of patients don't. Right. Now they used to, you know, fertility is new. IVF is fairly new. Right. There's a lots of changes all the time that we have to stay up to date on. You used to only could go to till about day three and then you would vitrify those. Now we can go to day five, day six, maybe even day seven, and then vitrify them, right? Right. Yes. So um, that is a testament to our culture system um, and how it has developed over time and the media that we use, the environment that the embryos are in, um, allows uh, the embryos to develop um, at, at a higher rate in the lab versus, you know, you know, years and years ago, we just didn't have the appropriate environment to sustain the embryo growth all the way out to blastocyst stage. So that's why, you know, we were doing transfers on day three and freezing on day three rather than growing them out. Now our culture systems um, are much more highly developed and uh, we have found that, that growing them out really leads to a better outcome because we're transferring these high quality blastocysts back into the uterus at an appropriate time. So um, when we were doing a day three transfer, you know, in the body in vivo, a day three uh, embryo is not in the uterus yet. It's still in the fallopian tube. Um, so the environment in the fallopian tube is different than the environment in the uterus. And so with the blastocyst transfer, we're, uh, you know, more mimicking um, what we would see in vivo. Yeah. Okay. 
So I know a lot of couples go through, they go to several different clinics sometimes, and they have frozen embryos at a completely separate clinic. And now they're coming to a new clinic and they want to transfer those embryos. Say they weren't even tested. Say they didn't have PGD or PGS, anything like that. Um, How do you accept embryos into an embryology lab and keep all of the other embryos safe? Well, you know, most labs in in terms of receiving embryos are going to have um, specific requirements. So the embryos to be received obviously have had to, um, you know, undergo the the two, um, the egg and sperm donor, um, be it a, a couple or if it was actually uh, donor gametes, um, has to go through a series of testing. Uh, we need to know that there um, are no um, infectious, um, you know, type substances, like, you know, if they have hepatitis B or things like that, you know, generally are not accepted. Um, but basically what, you know, most labs are going to look for in, um, in accepting embryos is you're going to look at the technique with which that embryo was frozen, um, the type of media used, um, and the quality of the embryos and, and use those as, um, the justification of whether or not to accept that embryo into your program or not, uh, because every laboratory freezes their embryos differently. You know that that's not a, a universal standard mm. in terms of um, freezing. There's different um, there's different devices that the embryos can be frozen on. There's different um, completely different techniques with uh, slow freezing versus a rapid uh, vitrification type freezing. Uh, so you, you take all that into consideration in to what you feel that the success of that embryo would be in your program. Okay. So, and parents of these embryos don't really understand that. Right. I think a lot of people probably think that the freezing and the warming or thawing process is identical between labs and it, it really is not. And so, you know, sometimes people are wanting to transfer embryos that are f- frozen in, in a very foreign way to the laboratory they're sending them to. Um, you know, in my opinion, I think you have the the best outcome keeping your embryos at the lab that they were created in, because it's that laboratory that has the best understanding of the way that they froze the embryos and the way their procedure of warming. Um, but at, Saying that, of course, you know, people do transfer their embryos because they've moved across the country or, you know, for a variety of reasons, they'll transfer embryos to another clinic. And and we do have success with them. But, you know, the, there there is some um, disadvantages of doing that. You know, there can be an impact of, um, you know, just the differences in the freezing techniques versus the, you know, freezing and warming techniques of the receiving lab. Yeah. Well, I know that you said just a few minutes ago that you were even sometimes maybe going to day seven. And I didn't realize that you were taking them out that far now. Yes. So if um, on day six, you know, the embryos are, are still developing just a little bit further behind than where they need to be. We'll continue the culture out to day seven uh, to see if they can catch up. Uh, now the success rates are lower 
with day seven. So we see a higher number of embryos come back as genetically abnormal. Um, and then the embryos that come back um, genetically normal do have a lower implantation rate than the genetically normal embryos that were day five or day six. Um, that got to blastocyst by day five or day six. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, there are a number of day seven pregnancies. So, you know, I think that the, the field is kind of moving uh, towards the day seven culture. Uh, several clinics do this. And, uh, you know, at this point, there's, there's no harm in doing it. We're just observing them one more day. A lot of times what ends up happening is the embryos will kind of start to generate, to degenerate between day six and day seven. Um, so that kind of eliminates those. Uh, but there are um, occasions where they will go on and be a nice high quality blastocyst on day seven. So we are doing those biopsies. And if they come back genetically normal, we are transferring them. Is that the farthest you've ever taken it out was day yes. seven? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Next time I talk to you, it'd be like, we had a day eight. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be like, yeah. <laughs> Um, I know that a lot of success in embryology is due to um, genetic testing. Yes. And then transfer and then live birth rate, transfer of, you know, completely viable embryos. So can you talk to the testing a little bit? I, I want to know, I want to know how important you think it is to have embryos tested. And then I want you to walk me through how you actually um, take a sample to test without damaging the embryo. Right. And okay. Yeah. So in terms of the genetic testing, I feel like that is one of the greatest advances that we've seen in this field, um, in terms of catapulting the success rates. Um, and it, I, I feel like it's a combination of the genetic testing and the switch to the rapid freeze from the slow freeze, those two in combination, because genetically tested embryos must be frozen um, because the turnaround time on the genetic results can take up to two weeks. So we have to freeze our embryos that we are genetically testing. But I can get, I'll touch on the the, the yeah. uh, rapid freeze yeah. portion of this um, in a moment. But, um, but those two weeks of waiting can be just torture for the families. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and a lot of times it can be quicker. Um, but you know, it, de it depends on the reference lab that you're sending them to and how many patients they have in front of your patient and where they come in in line and, and how many embryos you're sending. Can you still send about eight at a time? Is that what you're doing? Or so, um, most reference labs will have eight embryos included in their package, uh, price that the patient pays. And then, um, after that, if the patient has uh, above eight embryos and they wish to test them, um, there's usually an additional fee per embryo oh, wow. beyond eight. Okay. So some um, patients will elect to test additional embryos and some just have us freeze those additional embryos without testing. And what are some of the terms that they will hear regarding testing? Some of the acronyms. So uh, there's, there's a variety of acronyms. Um, 
Um, most people refer to the genetic testing as CCS, comprehensive, comprehensive chromosome screening, uh, PGD, PGA, PGA. There's so many. It becomes a little confusing even for us yeah. because it seems almost every couple of years we, we transition to a different acronym that we're using. But um, basically the underlying um, message is, is the same. We are taking... A sample of the cells from the blastocyst, a sample of the placental cells from the blastocyst. So you can actually recognize microscopically what's the placenta. Yes, yes. So by the time the um, embryo has reached an advanced blastocyst, um, there is a clear differentiation between the cells that will form the baby and the cells that will form part of the placenta. So with the genetic testing, we're very careful to never touch the fetal cell line. We only ever want to take samples from the placental cell line. That's so cool. Coolest thing ever. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And uh, really has just resulted in amazing success and success on a much shorter time frame. So if say a patient uh, came through and had a cycle and had five beautiful blastocysts, uh, well, before genetic testing, the only way that uh, we would be able to select the embryo for transfer is by the way that that embryo looked. That was the only thing that that we had to discriminate between the embryos. So of course, as embryologists, you're going to pick the prettiest embryo. Yeah. And it's just by your judgment. Right. Right. Um, and the thing is, is that really beautiful embryo has just as high of a probability, uh, of being abnormal as an embryo that's not quite as pretty. Uh, so there's just no way of determining genetics without doing the testing. And so, um, you know, say, you know, in this scenario where you had five high quality blastocysts, you come in for your uh, transfer because back before genetic testing, we were doing mostly fresh transfers. So of course we're going to pick the highest quality blastocyst for transfer that day. We transfer that embryo. Well, that embryo happened to be, let's say one of the ones that was genetically abnormal. So that transfer results in a no pregnancy patient comes back. Again, the only selection criteria that we have is the way that that embryo looked, the grade of that embryo. Um, So we're going to select the next highest quality for transfer. Say we transfer that embryo, and again, that one was genetically abnormal. So patient comes back a third time, and we pick the next embryo, and and let's say that one was genetically normal. So we end up uh, with pregnancy, live birth, but that took three transfers. That's a lot of time, a lot of emotion, um, and a lot of uh, financial strain. And high risk, also high risk to the uterine cavity. Who knows, you know, if that baby does, um, she maintains a pregnancy for 17, 18 weeks, Right. And then and then we find out that it's, you know, not a viable pregnancy. Right. Because some of the uterus. Yeah. So some of the genetic abnormalities can result in um, you know, initial pregnancy and a late term loss. So, you know, it, By doing the genetic testing up front, we have these five embryos at the end of our cycle. We do the genetic testing. The results come back. We know that two of those five are normal. Well, the three that are abnormal are 
completely, they're not considered for transfer. So we start off with our highest potential and um, we're only transferring those genetically normal embryos. And that's why the success rate is so high, you know, with a, uh, transferring a genetically normal embryo, about 70%, um, well, depending on clinic, but um, can be as high as, you know, 70% uh, implantation per embryo. Right. Because typically these women, um, they have normal uterine cavities. They are able to gestationally carry a child. It's Generally, the eggs are of poor quality, and that's hard for them to understand. Well, how can I carry a child? You know, they think the uterine cavity and the eggs are all in one. It's a package. <laughs> it's right, a package deal. Right, Yeah. So the, um, the, the egg quality is very uh, strongly correlated. The genetics of the egg very strongly correlated with the woman's age. So as the woman ages, the likelihood that her eggs are genetically normal decreases, you know, pretty dramatically with age. And so we, we see that in terms of the genetic results. And, um, if you look at different, um, reference labs and, and their, uh, what they're reporting as normal, um, normal, uh, genetic outcomes for different age populations, uh, we definitely see uh, quite a drop-off after, you know, typically age 40, we'll start to see that drop-off. So patients less than 35 will see, you know, typically 60, 65% of those embryos come back as genetically normal. Um, and then patients uh, between 35 and 40 about a 50% uh, genetically normal rate. And then we start to see a drop. Um, so 41 to 42, uh, it'll drop down to about 30%. And then after 42, we see a severe drop to, you know, less than 10% of the embryos that are tested coming back as genetically normal. Now, once we get that genetically normal embryo, though, what we see is transferring that embryo into back into a woman's uterus, age suddenly uh, disappears from the equation. So if we have a genetically normal embryo, we're seeing the same implantation rates across the board from the under 35 group to the 35 to 40 to the over 40 group, we, we are still, we're seeing, um, similar implantation rates. Um, but we have to start with that genetically normal embryo and the genetically normal embryo gets harder to come by as the woman ages. Right. So, right. Um, but those who have frozen embryos, I mean, that's who you see in people magazine that a 50 year old just had a baby. And people are like, what? It's like, well, yeah, she had an embryo. She's got a uterus. Right, right. Well, we don't always know the whole story no, behind no. that. But it's Certainly. people. Yeah. Magazine. So you it's, know it's true. It's, you know it's true. Well, I'm not saying that it's not true, but... <laughs> You know, there's there's also donor gametes that probably come into play yeah. on some of oh, those yeah. cases, oh, yeah. but um, but yeah, so um, you know, I think there there is a big difference between you know the aging of the ovary versus the aging of the uterus. Um, but that being said, you know, even when we have the genetically normal embryos, they aren't implanting a hundred percent of the time. 
Um, so we know that there are other variables that we haven't um, completely solved the, the puzzle yet, that there's other things that um, do come into play and can cause a negative result um, even when right. we have a genetically normal embryo. Right. And things like endometrial biopsies, and, and those are really forthcoming. And and um, I think we're moving moving in the right direction with things like that as right. far as implantation rates. So yes. that's good. Um, so do you, I, I know there are times when um, embryos are stored and people do end up with more embryos than they really wanted to have as far as offspring. And so they either opt to store the embryos with you, with the clinic, or they opt to discard those. How, um, have you seen patients that, you know, how are they reacting to that? Yeah. So I think this is a, a big dilemma yeah. for a lot of patients. Um, you know, we created these embryos and, um, you know, they've perhaps they've completed their family or they just decided not to continue, um, you know, with the process of fertility treatment. Um, what do we do with these excess embryos? So, um, there are different options now that patients can choose. Um, of course, one option is just to continue to pay indefinitely, um, which a lot of patients do choose. Um, another option is donating your embryos to another couple. Um, and some fertility clinics have their own in-house embryo donation programs. If the clinic does not have that program, there are national organizations that patients can donate their embryos to. They can either be anonymous donors or they could um, actually have different levels of interaction with the family that receives their embryos. Um, and then, of course, patients can choose um, to discard their embryos or they can choose to donate them to uh, research. Yeah. Those that, um, those that don't want to donate due to moral issues, religious beliefs, those types of things, and yet have difficulty discarding and really don't want to pay the annual fee for storage, um, I've heard that there are, you know, um, certain things that can be done. So they can either take those embryos, have a memorial service or do those kinds of things. So I'm picturing you with a cryo tank <laughs> and now these embryos are going to be turned over to the parents. How do you present that to them? Yes. So um, typically what we will do is present them um, with the, the warmed device that the embryos are frozen on. It's an enclosed sealed device. And, um, we will give those devices to, um, the patient and then they can proceed with, um, you know, the, the process of burying them or, um, whatever it is that they, they would like to do to have closure at that point. And, and we do, um, provide that service. If a, if a patient requests, right. um, to receive, uh, the embryos, we will do that. Right. So is there a lot of legalistics that goes behind that? N no, There's um, not. in terms of just handing the embryos, no, they, uh, are just signing consents. Uh, notarized consents and uh, make arrangements to stop by and, and pick the embryos up. Now, every clinic may be different on what their procedures are for that. Right. Um, 
so I I kind of wanted to, you know, like I said, I, I, I picture you, I kind of picture Jurassic Park, like the whoo, you know, <laughs> the embryos are in the little, yes. you know, little test tube and that sort of thing. So I know you have to thaw those before you um, transfer them into mm-hmm. the uterine cavity. What is that process like? So it's a really uh, quick process, yeah. actually. Yes. So uh, the embryos are um, removed from their typically embryos are going to be stored um, under liquid nitrogen or they're going to be stored in vapors. And um, the embryos are, are are removed from the vessels that they're they're stored in, and then placed into a uh, a bath of nitrogen to actually. Uh, perform the warm-in. Um, and it, it, basically you're just taking the device rapidly out of the nitrogen and placing it immediately into your warming solution. So it's just a, a rapid movement of your hand from uh, directly from the liquid nitrogen into your warming media. And uh, once that starts, typically most protocols are anywhere from 10 to 15 minutes for the total warming time. So she's already prepped. She's in the room. She's prepped. She's ready for this transfer. Um, because you don't want to be like, well, she hasn't checked in yet. And I've got that embryo. Right. So. so, um, we, uh, typically what you'll do is, um, warm the embryos first thing in the morning. So confirmation has already been established with the patient that yes, they're coming in. Um, the consents have been signed. Uh, we, you know, we have the procedure time scheduled, uh, usually mid, you know, mid morning, early afternoon. Um, so we're going to warm those embryos first thing and, uh, we warm them takes about 10, to 15 minutes. And then we place the warmed embryos into the incubator and let them recover a bit from the warming process. So when you freeze an embryo, you are basically removing all the water from that embryo and they shrivel up kind of like a raisin would uh, removing the water from it. And when you warm the embryo, you are uh, allowing that water to come back in. So the embryo needs a little time to uh, for that exchange to happen where the water comes back in and it re-expands to its original shape. So um, we'll let the embryos recover for a couple hours in the incubator prior to transferring. And then we have a, an accurate uh more measure of how that embryo survived. So when we warm an embryo, we're going to say, uh, we're going to look at cell survival. Um, and then we're going to look at re-expansion. So the cell survival is basically a done deal. So if 80% of the cells survive, that's black and white, you know, 80% survived. Re-expansion is different. That is a process that happens over time. So maybe initially when you warmed it, there is very slight re-expansion, but then a couple hours later, we'll see either moderate to full re-expansion. And the embryos oftentimes will look like they've never even been frozen. Wow. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, Have there ever been like worst case scenarios where um, you get a call from the parents, we were in a car accident we're not going to make it in. The embryo is frozen. Can you, or the embryo has thawed. Mm -hmm. Can you then refreeze embryos? 
Can it be safe? Yes, you can refreeze them. Um, Every process that you do with an embryo is a little bit of a trauma, if you will. Very fragile. Yes. So, um, you know, we we can uh, freeze them and warm them and refreeze them and warm them again. And most embryos will tolerate that pretty well. Some embryos will not. Yeah, it's still so, a risk. Yeah. So in, in the event that something like that happened, um, we certainly could refreeze that embryo. Um, uh, and then also there are cases where, um, say, uh, the the patient who had, when we were talking before about the excess number of embryos, like if they if they had more than eight embryos initially and they uh, decided they were only going to biopsy eight and freeze the other embryos untested, um, say we didn't get enough embryos that came back normal and they want to test the others, we can warm those, biopsy them, refreeze them, and then get the genetic results on them and good. do a subsequent transfer. So, um, but, you know, I think it's good for patients to keep in mind, though, that that every procedure you know, it can be a little traumatic, you know, it's not, it's not without an effect on the embryo, but most of these procedures are very well tolerated. Yeah. Have you, do you remember ever having an occasion that was an emergency? Like I just mentioned with someone being in an accident or something. I, I've never uh, had a uh, experience like that. Um, good. Yeah. I mean, typically, yeah, this is the, this is the priority in someone's life. So unless, you know, an event like that happens, um, where it was an unforeseen accident on their way in, typically people don't not show up for an embryo transfer. (laughs) Oh, did I miss that date? (laughs) True. Now, um, as far as the clinic goes, um, you have to, there's protocols for storage. And I know that, you know, everyone has seen the report of the one clinic that lost about 4,000 embryos because one of the nitrogen tanks was defective. And all of those embryos, um, you know, they, um, they arrested, of course. So can you talk to me a little bit about how they're stored and how patients can feel safe about that? Yes. So, um, at at mo- most clinics, um, you are going to store. There's a couple methods that you can store your embryos, and you can, like I said before, you can store them under uh, liquid nitrogen, or you can store them in liquid nitrogen vapors. Um, it is uh, a requirement um, if you are uh, certified under. CAP, the College of American Pathologists, that you alarm all of your tanks. So each um, tank uh, that is containing all of these frozen samples has a probe, a temperature probe on the tank. And if there's any temperature fluctuation, then the probes are attached to alarms and the alarms are attached to phone trees. So um, personnel are notified immediately. Um, The other thing about um, the the storage containers uh, for for the cryopreserved um, specimens is that they're pretty, uh, if, if they start to fail 
it's a pretty obvious when they start to fail. So you'll start to see um, frost forming on the outside of the device because it can no longer um, it, it can no longer uh, preserve the the temperature within the actual device anymore, and the temperature is coming out, and you see all the frost on the outside of the storage device. Um, so that's one key indicator. I know, I, I suppose every laboratory doesn't keep their uh, storage devices um, accessible within their lab. In our lab, all of our storage devices are located within our IVF lab. So every day we are interacting with these devices. We see them, um, we have eyes on them, um, but they, they all have um, probes attached to them um, that will alarm. There's other type of measure, uh, type of devices coming out um, ever, ever since this um, uh, unfortunate accident did happen. Um, this has been on the main uh, forefront of all fertility fertility clinics um, minds, and so there are different types of security measures. Some um, uh, types of measures would be putting your actual uh, cryo storage device on a scale, and so you're um, looking then at the weight of the device, and then if the liquid nitrogen is um, decreasing within that, then the weight would change and that would notify you. So there's all different types of ways to ensure that uh, a tragedy like that doesn't happen. Um, And then, of course, at the first signs of seeing a failure in one of your tanks or storage devices, you have to have a backup system in place. So, um, you know, we have a, a backup tank that then if if we see one of our uh, tanks failing, we just move all the samples into our backup tank that's monitored as well. So um, it, in, until we can get a replacement for the one that has failed. Good. Yeah. Um, I, I know that there are some, and correct me if I'm wrong, I just, I heard this from someone, um, one of the physicians actually, <laughs> there's hazard signs. Um, you know what I'm talking about. Yes. You know, if you've got, you know, you've got O2 in there, you've got, right. you know, chemicals in there, you've got, so, so that if anything were to happen and there was an emergent rescue, you know, either the fire department would see the hazard signs. Is there one that indicates that there's embryo storage? Um, cause here's what I heard. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I heard that. There's some type of symbolism on the hazard sign or somewhere next to the hazard sign that the fire department, when there is, for example, we, we call 911, we've got a fire in the building, they know by that sign, the first thing, you know, one of the first things to rescue is we've got tanks with embryos in them. Is that correct? And I heard that they're, they're basically all chained together. They are chained. And then the fire department has been trained to grab the chains and can take all of them out together at one time. Is that? So that is the, <laughs> You're looking at me like Well, well I mean, the, the tanks are chained, <laughs> yeah. and that is the purpose of them being chained, is so that they could be pulled Rescued. out. Rescued. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, the symbolism on the door, the... Maybe they, that's where the confusion is yeah, that in my story. Is, um, <laughs> that is to, to denote what kind of potential hazard a um, 
a, a chemical or in our case, it's for liquid nitrogen, right. um, what hazard that presents. So, you know, it's with nitrogen, it's asphyxiation. Um, so you have to be very careful and work in a very, um, open air space. You can't be in tight confinement with the liquid nitrogen because it, you know, absorb, it it replaces oxygen. So it it steals your oxygen. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's what the symbol, um, Mm -hmm. denotes on the door. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it really takes a while for a tank to fail, which, you know, I, there are warning signs and, and the thing is within our lab and is a requirement with cap is that you measure your tanks, liquid levels three times a week. So we have a yardstick that we stick into each of our tanks and we measure the level. And if it's ever below a certain level, then we have to add nitrogen right at that point. Otherwise, we always top off our tanks um, once a week um, and measure them three times a week. So you start to see, you know, if a tank's failing, you'll start to see that it's not holding the same level of liquid. Um, And even when um, the tanks, um, you know, are losing their liquid, they're, they're still... Uh, maintaining that temperature because if you think of the um, uh, tissue that is stored not in liquid but in vapor, um, those aren't even exposed to liquid. It's it's just the the vapor that comes off of the liquid that's still so cold. So it will it will maintain um, temperature. You have time to react um, if you are taking the proper steps along the way, if you're measuring, if you're, and you have alarms, I mean, there, there is appropriate time to react. So with our patients, because we have had many patients ask about that. And so again, it's really about education in terms of, um, you know, giving them the information. This is what we do. This is our protocol. This is how we ensure the safety of all of our cryopreserved embryos. Um, and we don't take that lightly. You know, we, we have lots of steps, lots of measurements. And, and again, those tanks are looked at every single day. Good. So you were talking about the, the call tree. If there's an alarm that goes off on those tanks, there's a call tree. So do you have to take call specifically just for the tanks? No. So uh, basically, the closest person gets called first, which happens to be you? me. <laughs> So whether or not the alarm goes off at 6 p.m. or 2 a.m., I get up and come in. Now, if I don't answer the phone, then it calls the next person and then the next person until someone does respond. But basically, that's how it works. So, you know, I'm maybe at most five minutes away. So I get the call and I just go in and, and, and most of the time, all the calls that I've received are are just, you know, there was a blip in the power and that triggers the alarm, even though the backup generator's on or the power has been restored, it, it does trigger it and it requires a manual, um, kind of override on it. So someone does have to come in and assess the situation. Well, I can imagine because we get some pretty big snowstorms here and some pretty big wind drifts. And it probably does affect the power. Right. And right. it will trigger that. Mm-hmm. And um, not only that, but you, you know, for example, with our IVF patients, when we get them to retrieval time, you are actually in that retrieval with those patients. And, you know, with those snow, snowstorms and things like that, it, sometimes it's difficult to get everybody there. Oh, yes. And she's at a point where 
she's ready to get those eggs out. And so sometimes that's a problem. Yes. So, um, we do pay attention to the weather and if there is the potential for a big storm to come in, then we put necessary staff in, uh, hotels uh, close by so that everyone, the minimum, you know, number of essential people are able to get in and perform those procedures, um, on time. Right. So when I'm in retrievals with patients, and you're sitting behind me with your microscope. They're retrieving the eggs. I've got the eggs. They hand the, you know, each couple of eggs that they retrieve, they hand me a test tube. I then walk across a platform and hand you the test tube. I'm scared to death. I'm going to trip and fall. Or in our handoff, like, ah, bad handoff. Yeah. You know, do you, do you think about that too? Or is it just me? <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's always in the back of your mind. And I think paranoia makes a very good uh, embryologist <laughs> and nurse as well, I'm sure. So, um, you know, it, it is always there, but it, you know, we're, we're trained. We, we, we think about it, but it doesn't happen. I mean, that's, right, it doesn't. Yeah. I'm very conscious when I'm making sure that your hand is completely wrapped exactly. around that tube before I let go and yes. turn around and go back. Yeah. So that's true. Um, so the OO sites at that time, they're very identifiable in your microscope because you're, you're letting us know, I see two eggs in this tube. Yes. I see an egg in this tube. And we're keeping count as you're going along looking at these. Um, so it's very identifiable. Is it... Yes. In some cases, it's even identifiable macroscopically before we even look in the microscope. And that's because at this point, the eggs, the oocytes are surrounded by thousands of other cells um, called cumulus cells. And so that makes a, a mass. It's a kind of a clear mass. And the tubes, as you know, um, often contain some blood. And so we'll see a clear mass in this dish of bloody fluid. It's pretty easy to identify. Um, sometimes you can't see it microscopically, but usually um, when we we pour the fluid in, we'll see a suspicious spot and we'll go right to that um, to verify that it is indeed an oocyte. And that's when we're um, notifying right. the physician and nurses that we have found one. Right. And then that patient goes to recovery. And then once they start waking up and they're a little bit more alert, you'll come in and you'll talk to them. Yes. Yes. So we're going to let them know how many um, oocytes that have been retrieved. And at that time in our clinic, we um, will assess maturity immediately following the retrieval. So we can let patients know at that time uh, how many of those eggs are mature. So say we recovered 10 eggs, we already know that eight of those are mature. So for sure, we're going to be doing ICSI on those eight. So when they leave, they have a better idea of where, you know, kind of where they're standing. Right. And I know you also call the family at certain points in times of development. Yes. So um, we will call the following morning uh, after we have done our fertilization check. So we'll call them and let them know how many of those mature eggs from the retrieval were fertilized normally and how many um, 
embryos then that we're culturing out to day five and day six or possibly day seven of development. Um, so they get that phone call and we'll do that first thing in the morning because we know everyone is very anxious to get that phone call. So usually we try to call between about eight and nine AM. And I think most clinics will probably, um, you know, fall into that same range. Yeah. And then you'll call them again. So we typically won't call again until day five of development. Um, Occasionally we'll call on day three if the patient has a very low number of embryos and they just want an update because it's too anxiety provoking to, to wait until that day five phone call. Um, it used to be that we would routinely do day three phone calls. Um, but it, that really changed, um, you know, when we switched from doing, um, fresh transfers to, um, CCS or frozen transfers and and things like that. Um, because originally there would be a decision to be made on day three, right? So you would be deciding, are we going to hold this patient to day five and day six and do a transfer, um, at the blastocyst stage, or are we questioning the quality of the embryos and we're going to do a day three transfer? So once we really moved away from that model of fresh transfers, we, eliminated the day three phone call because, um, it's not always predictive of the outcome and it can oftentimes cause some anxiety. Um, and again, there's no decision to be made. So, um, unless there is a case where none of the embryos divided, um, not hearing from an embryologist on day three is, is probably a good thing. No yeah. news is good news yeah. on day three. That's that's hard to tell them no news is good news because yes. they're like, is the phone going to ring? Uh, right. On day three. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so, uh, but, you know, initially I feel like when we made the transition, um, not doing day three phone calls and pushing out to day five, there was some resistance with patients. But, you know, over time, I think uh, patients have become more accepting. And when we explain it really, um, you know, that that it really is not adding a lot um, kind of to their knowledge at that point. Because if, if I were to call and say, well, the embryos are a little bit delayed in their cellular development or say I'm seeing a higher percentage of fragmentation. You know, in the patient's mind, that causes a lot of anxiety when in fact, those embryos do have potential to go on, right? Or the reverse, say uh, all the embryos look beautiful on day three. They're all exactly where we want them to be. That doesn't guarantee that we're going to have, you know, all those embryos are going to develop into high quality blastocysts. So, you know, I, I think patients got more accepting of that as time went on that, you know, they were okay waiting to that day five phone call. And you developing a way to talk to the patients so that they don't have increased anxiety or so that they don't believe that every single fertilized egg is going to development, is going to develop was probably something you've had to work on like constantly. Right. And I think every um, embryologist has their own way of doing that. 
And I know that mine has definitely evolved (laughs) over the years. You know, I'll incorporate some things and get rid of some things that I feel like, oh, maybe that's not the best way to phrase something or, you know, judging by people's reactions. You, You evolve as a professional and start to understand, um, what makes people feel the most comfortable. You, you want to be honest and I am honest with patients. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, 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 I try to be very clear, even though I know it's not necessarily what they want to hear, but I think that the more honest that I can be right from the beginning, the less devastating it might be right. in the end. Right. So you know, I do try to be very honest, but I try to be very sensitive yeah. about how I, how I phrase things. And that's, that's a really hard, it's a balancing act. Balance act. Yeah. yeah. That's very hard. That's where my so, marriage and family, uh, I, yeah, that's right. It's all coming together now. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, I know that you probably have to work pretty closely with andrology also. So as she's in retrieval, um, either there's donor sperm available or there's someone collecting, um, sperm. Right. And when, do you actually communicate with andrology or do they just bring you the tube and say, sperm looks good, you know, there's, or there's very low motility in this. Like, do they go ahead and analyze it? Well, you know, every center can be different on this. So some centers will have a separate andrology laboratory that will uh, go ahead and prep the sperm up for ICSI. Um, And then some centers in the embryology lab itself, um, they process their own sperm. So then the embryologists um, are the ones that are uh, preparing their own sperm for ICSI. So there isn't a lot of analysis that's done on the day of retrieval. So with a sperm analysis, that's typically done on, uh, on a day three workup or earlier, you know, in their treatment plan just to see um, what the parameters of the sperm are. Um, on the day of retrieval, the only thing that we're uh, really concerned with is, is there sperm? <laughs> is it moving? Um, and, you know, how uh, low of number we might be talking about. So if we know that the sperm is is really bad, say it's it, has very, very low motility, or there are hardly any sperm present, then we're probably going to start um, that case a little bit earlier than we would typically um, start our ICSI to give us time to find sperm. Because there have been cases where it takes, you know, a couple hours to find the sperm. Wow. So during this whole time, the eggs are aging. There is a, there's a magic window that you want to uh, inseminate your eggs in. Uh, so you don't want the eggs to age too long while you're looking for sperm. So if you know ahead of time that you have a, a very difficult case, you can start searching for your sperm earlier and have it prepared so that at the time that the ICSI is supposed to, you know, actually be taking place, you're ready. Right. And those with low motility, low concentration, sometimes we'll go ahead and have them freeze several samples so that we do have some backup. Right. Yeah. Yes. So um, we we can always um, utilize those samples if we have to. We prefer fresh. Right. Um, but if we have to, we'll then um, dip into some of the frozen samples to see if we can increase the numbers or increase, you know, those that are modal that we were able to use for ICSI. Right. Now, unlike the stalls for the equine, we do not have mounting. (laughs) (laughs) 
you know, facilitations for that. So Correct. the the um, the attitude of the husbands per se mm-hmm. that have to go into collection when their spouse is in surgery is yes. not an easy thing to do. Right. And you know, I've seen several things from them walking out and saying, I can't do this. This is not happening today. And then you end up having to freeze the eggs and then him collect at another time, correct? Right. So, uh, you know, there can be a variety of things that happen. It's, it is a high pressure situation, <laughs> right? And everyone reacts differently to it. Um, by and large, the vast majority of the time, it is a non-issue. Um, the husbands are able to um, produce a specimen, a sperm specimen without any issue. Um, sometimes, um, they will require a little extra time or maybe taking a break, or we could give them, um, a home collection cup and they could go home or if they're traveling to the the hotel that they're staying in and they can, um, collect the sample there and then bring it back. Um, we have a few hours that, we can play with between, um, retrieval time and the time that we're doing the ICSI. So we typically do our ICSIs about four to five hours after the retrieval. So there's some time in there, um, that hopefully, um, creates a little less anxiety for the husband. Right. And that is communicated to them. And I think it does help but I just, it just seems like a really difficult situation. Yes. I, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, so proud of those boys. I know. I know. <laughs> I, it is hard, a little bit hard for me to be sympathetic to that when I think of everything that the wives go through. You are um, on but, spot with that. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I can see how that it would be an uncomfortable situation right. for them. Yeah. Now, will you just tell me how you actually... Um, take the sperm and inject it. Will you paint a picture of that for me? Sure. So uh, when you prep the sperm up, we'll just start from there. So um, the sample is collected and our first priority is getting the the sperm out of the seminal fluid and, and getting rid of all of the dead sperm and the debris that's in the ejaculate. So you're running um, the ejaculate through a density gradient and um, you put the density the density gradient with the ejaculate in a centrifuge, and you spin that. And during that centrifuge process, the uh, good modal sperm will collect at the bottom and pellet up at the bottom, and then the seminal fluid and other debris gets stuck in those layers of the density gradient. Um, so then you uh, take the pellet, out of that tube, and then you place it into fresh media and you'll spin it a couple more times to wash it up just to get some of that off. And so you're left with basically, you know, hopefully just your modal sperm. I mean, sometimes it it just depends on the ejaculate, how clean it it, uh, preps up. But we uh, then take after the final wash, we'll have uh, that pellet of sperm and we'll put it in fresh media and we do what's called a swim up. So uh, the pellet is placed at the bottom with some media on top. And then over that four to five hour interval between um, the time of sperm collection and ICSI, the modal sperm will swim to the top of that uh, media. 
And so what we'll do in the embryology lab is take just the tiniest sample of that media from the very, very top. So we want the sperm that has swum up to the top that was strong enough to get up there. So we take that from the top of our sample, and then we will place that into our ICSI dish. Now, our ICSI dish contains multiple drops of the media. And then one of those drops, the, the drop that we put the sperm in, is a different type of media. It's a really viscous media. And when we put the sperm in there, the sperm slow way down. So we can assess the sperm a lot easier in this media versus it being in, um, you know, a re the regular culture media. They, they just are too fast. Uh, so this slows them down. We're able to assess the, the way that sperm looks. We're looking at the sperm head, the sperm tail, the way the sperm is moving. Is it moving in a progressively forward fashion? Is it just going in a tight circle and never going to get anywhere? Um, so we have the criteria that we're looking for. We select our sperm. Once we see the sperm that we want, um, there are two uh tools that we use with ICSI. We have our ICSI needle, and then uh, we have a, a holding pipette. And so this, they're kind of, um, I liken it to like a, a video game, really. Uh, we're on a big microscope and um, we are using these joysticks that we um, can have coarse movement with our hands, which produces very fine movement uh, microscopically. And so when we see the sperm that we want, we will place our ICSI needle down into the media above the sperm that we want, and we will slash the sperm's tail. We will strike the sperm over its tail to immobilize it. So cruel. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's, it's worked so it's hard. It's so to very get to hard. This point. Very hard. <laughs> and we reward it by immobilizing it. Um, so we, we immobilize it and then we uh, aspirate that sperm. We suck that sperm up into our ICSI pipette tail first. And um, then we repeat the process depending on how many eggs. Um, that we're injecting. And so once we have the sperm that we want, we uh, just move our dish uh, uh, slightly over, which will then expose our drop that contains our eggs under the microscope. And um, we'll align our eggs up the way that we like. We lower the ICSI needle that now has our immobilized sperm. And then on the left-hand side, we will lower our um, holding pipette. Um, and the holding pipette will, um, hold the egg in place while we're doing the ICSI because we can't have the egg moving. So it, it's a gentle suction. Um, we have the egg in a specific, uh, manner, a specific orientation when we do the ICSI. So always the, um, the polar body of the egg is at, we will place that about 12 o'clock um, or six o'clock. And then we put our injection needle with our sperm at three o'clock and we, um, we advance the needle, um, containing the sperm into the egg. And then, um, we aspirate back on our, uh, ICSI needle, kind of uh, sucking the egg, if you will, up into the needle, because we have to have the egg itself break. We need to see a break in the oplasm of the egg. And once we see that, then we will replace the oplasm back into the egg along with the sperm. If you don't see the egg break, 
what will happen is the sperm won't, and, and you, and you put the sperm in, the sperm won't actually go inside the egg. It'll go in that perivitellin space and never fertilize the egg. Mm. So you have to be very clear that you see the, uh, the oolima of the egg break. And so we place the sperm in the egg and then we retract our ICSI needle and go to our next egg. Fascinating. Yeah. That's amazing. You do have to be aware of the suction. You don't. You can't. You don't want to have um, too great of a suction on the egg because if the olemo, because uh, you you are putting the zona pellucida of of the oocyte onto the suction, not the oplasm, and so you never want to see the actual membrane of the egg get pulled up by the holding pipette. I think that's very damaging. Um, and I think that can lead to um, degeneration of the eggs. Um, so you have to be very careful. So there is a, there's a sweet spot on the suction um, to keep it uh, very steady without um, damaging the olema. Um, and then, uh, in terms of what you're seeing when you place the ICSI needle in, you'll see that invagination or that funnel formation on those really nice, high quality, um, oocytes that have that good integrity. And then, you know, sometimes you won't see that at all. Sometimes it's just really watery and, a lot of times those eggs will degenerate um, and you'll see it immediately because you'll start to pull your ICSI needle out and the oplasm will just kind of start spilling out. And there's just really nothing you can do. It's an egg quality issue. Um, we just make notations of that and, you know, make sure that the physician is aware. Right. And that yeah. way they have some explanation for the patient because right. that's one thing that embryology does is it really helps diagnose this is one reason that this is not happening. Yes. Yes. It can provide some answers. Yeah. Um, absolutely. When we, when we start seeing things like that, or if we're looking at the sperm and the quality of the sperm is, is just so, you know, very poor, so low numbers. Well, this is an answer. This is, yeah. yeah. Sometimes it's just completely unexplained though. Right. You know, I hate that so, diagnosis. Though, I that know. unexplained infertility. That's, that's a just hard the worst one, one to swallow because, you yeah. know, it, it's nice to have a defined reason. We Not that like it makes answers. it really any easier, but it, it does right. help with, I think, some closure sometimes. Yeah, right. So um, I know that you can't um, have any, anything with odor right. in the embryology lab. Mm -hmm. Do you live your life that way? Like, do you never wear perfume? Yeah. Do you never wear... Well, I have perfume on right now. I actually do some you on when I came here. <laughs> My uh -oh, sites just died. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so, um, you know, the body does a lovely job of protecting um, yeah. our eggs and embryos within our bodies, right? But uh, once we take them out, they are exposed to things that they normally wouldn't be exposed to. Um, so we have really fantastic air handling systems systems in uh, fertility clinics. Uh, we go to great lengths to clean the air uh, so that uh, our gametes and embryos that we have in the lab are not exposed to all these volatile organic compounds. Um, but yeah, we do request that patients and staff 
do not wear, um, you know, very uh, smelly uh, soaps or colognes and things like that. Lotions, makeup. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's amazing all the things that have scents. So, right. Yeah, yeah. Right. But when I go to work, I definitely use unscented soap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do too when I'm in retrievals. It's, yes. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I don't put deodorant on. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't you, go that Kim. far. <laughs> I wear deodorant. <laughs> well, um, I was a NICU nurse for 17 years. And so there was... You know, there was a time where there was an outbreak of some fungi in some of the neonates, and um, they were dying. And mm-hmm. come to find out, it was underneath the fake fingernails of the nurses that was, and that's how they finally identified it. So I went my whole, you know, 20 year career as a NICU nurse with, you know, you couldn't have nails, you couldn't have fingernails at all. You know, so you cut your fingernails down short. You never had fingernail polish because the fungus could. Right. So it's things in the medical field that, you know, like the odors, things that you have to do in order to protect your patients. And Right, right. And but yeah, people aren't aware of that. They don't mm-hmm. think of that. But, you know, we do educate our patients on that. Mm-hmm. And we do um, very much ask that they uh, limit or don't wear those those smelly um Perfumes yeah. and soaps and things when they do come in for their procedures. Yeah. Those phthalates can be damaging. Yes. Damaging. So Can Infertility Vitamins and Supplements offers a product called NV. That stands for Nutritional Vitamins uh, for Ovarian Health. And the biggest value in the NV is it has myoinositol in it. I know that's a really big word. <laughs> what? <laughs> Myoinositol. So if you have PCOS, you've probably heard of this because um, sometimes it's used instead of metformin and those kinds of things, and it helps you absorb insulin. Yeah, so many people have PCOS and have that issue of absorbing insulin, and this is a great product for that. It's also in a powder form, and you can mix it with your protein shake or yogurt or oatmeal, and that makes it really convenient just to kind of take Whenever. And another cool thing that Canon has done, because they recognized that in addition to NV, you end up having to also get um, acai, melatonin, and coenzyme Q10 in addition to that. They put it all in a packet together so that it's a, it's a cheaper way for you to access this product. And what's so super cool is you get the NV powder form. And then in a daily tear-open packet, they've put together the acai, the coenzyme Q10, and the melatonin that you take once at night. I think people really appreciate when they can just not think about it, just tear open a packet, and then take whatever they need. Canon is so great about looking at the patient and just trying to help the patient through this process and make them as successful as possible. You can order NV or NV Plus on their website at canonco.llc.com. I everything in the medical field is so expensive, you know, regardless of which um, specialty it is. Um, the microscopes, uh, the the uh, micro manipulators, those joysticks that we use, they, you know, that whole system can be up to a hundred thousand um, dollars. And then all the other 
equipment that is necessary, the, the incubators and um, the, the hoods. Every time we have embryos outside of the incubators and we're working with them, they are in laminar flow hoods. So the airflow in the hoods is pushing out to keep any contaminants from coming in on the stage where the embryos are. All of those things are extremely expensive. They need maintenance uh, every year, uh, preventative maintenance as well as, as regular maintenance. Um, the incubators, just to keep them running, uh, require specific gases and um, it, it just is a very a pricey, pricey operation. Uh, the needles that we use for ICSI, the 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 actual ICSI needles, the holding pipettes, the needles used for biopsy, very expensive. Uh, each piece is is quite expensive. Um, and they're a single use, so um, so that cost adds up. The devices that we freeze embryos on the media that we use to culture and freeze the embryos is extremely expensive. So the dishes that they're cultured in, all the plastic wares, all the consumables, um, yeah, those costs very much add up. It is a hard thing to overcome, and especially because insurance doesn't really pay um, for that much. I mean, they'll pay some of the, the diagnostic ends, but they don't pay as much on the laboratory side. It is a it is a hard thing. I I mean, and you're not only paying for, you know, all the equipment. You're paying for the personnel too. You know, uh, in the 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 expertise of the the personnel at the lab, um, and you know, there there is just a lot to go into. So I'm not I'm not really sure how I would explain it. I think probably by the time they come to me, they they don't ask that question anymore. Yeah. As a nurse, one of the discussions I have with them is, you know, and I, I, I'm like you, I try to be as honest as possible. Um, and you're a little more gentle than I am. I'm very direct <laughs> with my patients and, you know, it's, um, but what I try to have them observe is, you know, let's take a look at priorities and maybe that's something you need to think about. And, and I, don't really like to use this explanation, but sometimes it does um, send a message. How many new cars do you have parked in your driveway? You'll only have that new car that probably cost you about $30,000, you know, at least. Right, at a minimum. And you'll probably only have it for three or four years, and then you're going to move to a new car. Well, you figured out how to get a loan for that new car, Maybe you could take a look at that and see, and maybe do a little comparison. And sometimes that really works with some of the patients. Like, you're so right. Yeah. My family is way more important than my new car. So, uh, you know, we could take a loan on the house or we could find, you know, maybe talk to grandma and grandpa. They may help us with it. You know, those kinds of things to really kind of balance it out in our, you know, in our very luxurious American life. Yes. I think, yeah, definitely putting things into perspective like that because yeah. I guess people, you know, categorize those luxury necessities differently than medical expenses. Um, Especially so, when it's something that should naturally be happening. Right. Yeah. It's hard. And, 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 you know, it's a process. It's like, I think in someone's mind, that's just a process that they have to go through. They have to... 
it takes a while to accept right. that, you know, they need this type of assistance when everyone else around them, you know, comes up, I, I'm pregnant. I'm not sure how that even happened. So you, hard. Yeah. It's really hard. And you see that all the time. You can't escape it. You know, you're at the grocery store and, you know, you're running into all these people who are pregnant. I mean, you just can't avoid it or that they have their children. It's just not something that you can really escape. That's right. Our son, uh, who is nine, um, going on 20, <laughs> he, um, you know, my husband and I basically looked at each other and got pregnant with him. So it's like, oh, so this is great. This is easy um, because I was very worried about it being in this field, you know, and I um, had conceived him late. We uh, got married later um, than most people. And so I thought, oh, this might be a little bit difficult, but very, very easy. But then when we went to have a second child, we could not conceive. We just, it just wasn't happening. Um, so we did go through IVF and, um, I did one cycle with my own eggs and failed that cycle. And then I used an egg donor and I was able to get pregnant, but I kept miscarrying. So, you know, it was a choice that I made at that point where I couldn't do it anymore, you know, but it was a journey that I needed to take to get to that point. And, and, and I, sometimes I still think about it and I think, oh, maybe we should try it again. But most of the time, you know, I really do have kind of the closure that I needed. You know, we tried, we did everything that we could. Um, you know, it was, and, and it was a huge financial burden. Um, to, to do those cycles. Um, so I do understand I am super empathetic and, and sympathetic with our patients because I've been there. I understand. And, um, it's a very difficult process to go through. Yeah. And every center is different. You know, like some centers allow their employees to go through, um, at no cost, and some don't. And I, at that time I was just working for a center that did not actually even allow their employees to go through. So, um, which, you know, that's fine. That, that was their role and that's okay. So I, um, sought uh, treatment at another center and then those centers were actually out of state. So then you have the, the extra cost of, of traveling and the extra stress there. So I, I completely understand when, when patients come in and I, you know, I, I understand there's, there's stress on multiple levels. And, I mean, we've done some um, high-profile um, embryos. You know, we've done um, princes and princesses and those kinds of things. And um, I don't know if you've been around when we've done some of those, but that's got to be pretty stressful too because not only are they looking for, um, you know, a, health, a healthy embryo, of course, for, for an heir, they're typically um, gender selected too. They want a male heir. Mm. And mm -hmm. so um, gender selection is also one of the things that, it, one of the reasons that people do go through yes. a clinic. Yes. Uh, we have a lot of patients um, who um, are gender selecting and, um, you know, as far as our standpoint in the embryology lab, um, we try to be um, really clear if all the um, 
the quality of the embryos is equal. Um, you know, it, it's really, you know, it's the patient's choice. They, they can, um, select the gender they want. If they have four girls that are AA quality and they have one boy that's a B minus quality, we are very clear with them that, you know, we will transfer the boy, but they are reducing their chances by selecting that embryo first over the higher quality embryos. Right. Right. Uh, when I was in there with you, I noticed that you, you kind of talk to the little, the little embryos, like when you're done with them. <laughs> oh. Can you talk about that a little bit? <laughs> That's just a personal thing. <laughs> People might think I'm crazy if I talk about that. No, I just, you know, when I put them back, uh, I just have this little ritual that I do, I guess. I put them in and I tap the incubator door and I just, you know, I, I don't know. I just say a few little blessings under my breath. <laughs> oh, I did that with my NICU babies too. I yeah, get it. <laughs> yeah, I just feel like, you know, just put the positive energy out there. That's so, so cute. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's somebody's dream. That's someone's future. So I definitely honor that. Is there okay. anything else you wanted to talk about? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> she, I don't even want to be here. She says confident. <laughs> um, you were awesome. Oh, thank you right. so thank much. You. Thank you so much for having oh, me. Oh, see, no, I really appreciate fun, it. it. Yes. It was so fun. Yes. Fertility, Let's Be Honest, is hosted by Khalees Cryer. Our executive producer, editor, and sound engineer is Kirsten Bitzer. Our theme song is Somebody to Love by Andy De Los Santos. 